Trinity Baptist Church. Once I was searching, forever constantly searching, looking for someone to fill the void left by a childhood marked by abuse and overachieving and fear. I was desperate for someone to mother me, to hold a grown-up little girl. I bounced from one surrogate mother to another, but no one, no matter how godly the woman, no matter how capable or loving the woman, no one seemed able to patch up my cracked-up heart. Then Jesus found me, and he showered my heart with his motherly qualities, compassion and safety and a love not dependent on anything I could do. He promised me he wouldn't hurt me or frighten me because first I was his and he loved me abundantly. Today, Jesus is my mama, even as I mother my own four rowdy little sprouts. He gave me my nurturing husband. He gave me four small blessings to whom I try to relay his love and acceptance. Today, I refuse to look to human arms to hold my broken self. Instead, I reach to my heavenly father, who just happens also to be my heavenly mother. My name is Nicole Cornell, and I am new. And now from Nehemiah 6, 1 through 9. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me this same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Nicole. Okay, <clears throat> I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I have a few quirks. Um, <laughs> yes, I do. I, I'm a, I can be a little quirky. One of my quirks is 
I find great, um, I don't know, so I, I, I like to try to find wisdom in bumper stickers. Whenever I see a bumper sticker, I'm looking for the I'm looking for the nugget of truth, and sometimes there's some really good stuff in bumper stickers. And so when I find one, I write it down. And so I have a list of bumper stickers. So I thought I would share a few with you, and some of them are kind of deep, all right? Um, Here was one that I really liked. Want a taste of religion? Bite a minister. Just saying. This one you might have to think about for a minute. My karma ran over your dogma. Beer isn't just for breakfast anymore. Um, Honk if you're illiterate. That'll come to you later. If you're rich, I'm single. And this one, this one I saw, and the context is really important. This was on the back of a minivan. All right, so keep that in mind. I used to be cool. <laughs> and then, this is no joke, I saw this one this week. Okay, and so when I saw this, I went, well, thank you, Lord. Another bumper sticker for me. This one said... Extraordinary only happens if you make it. Extraordinary only happens if you make it. Now that was very timely because we are in this series called Extraordinary. Where we have, um, the first week we established that, that most of us don't, feel like we are extraordinary or we, we don't feel like we're living extraordinary lives and yet almost all of us said that we wanted to be, right? When I asked the question at the beginning of the first week of this series, I said, how many of you would use the word extraordinary to describe yourself or describe your life? Very few hands went up. But then at the end of the service, when I said, how many of you want to commit yourself to living this extraordinary life? Almost everyone stood up. And so there's something in us that knows that God has wired us for the extraordinary. He's wired us to to live beyond average, to live beyond status quo, to live beyond um, ordinary, and to step into the extraordinary. What we've seen over these weeks as we've gone through the book of Nehemiah is that there are some things that God, that God, God does in helping us to become extraordinary and to experience this extraordinary life. But there are other things that we have to do. Um, we saw week one that, that God gives us a passion and that we pray because we know that, that we can't accomplish it in our own strength. And, and we've seen as we've gone through the book of Nehemiah that, that we need to keep praying. We keep, need to keep coming back to the Lord. We also saw that, that the extraordinary happens when we come together and we each do our part. So there are some things that are kind of outside of us. But then there are other things that are within us where the bumper sticker is true, that extraordinary only happens if you make it. You have to have a plan. And as we saw last week, um, 
opposition is going to come, and when opposition comes, you have to fight it. You have to fight it. This morning, we're going to look at at some more opposition from Nehemiah chapter 6, from the text that uh, Nicole just read from us, for us, where the enemy comes and and has three different um, ploys, three different attacks that they come against this extraordinary work that Nehemiah and Israel are accomplishing. So if you'd like to turn to Nehemiah chapter 6, it is, um, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, it's right at the end of the historical section, I know that helps you out quite a bit. Um, you go to First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then you hit Nehemiah. Let's look at this first attack of the enemy. It's in verses one through four. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Now, these guys think that they're being subtle. And they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to distract Nehemiah from the work. But who do they really think they're kidding? Right? I mean... Here are the same guys who had just tried to organize an attack against Nehemiah, and now they're just saying, hey, why don't you stop and come on down to Ono and hang out with us? Really? I mean, it's kind of like, hey, Nehemiah, we know we've been opposing you, and, and you know, you beat us fair and square, so why don't you just come on down to Ono and have a beer, or we'll buy you a cappuccino. You know, let's just let bygones be bygones. Bury the hatchet, so to speak. Take a little break from what you're doing. Who do they think they're talking to? Nehemiah must have been thinking, you know, I may have been born at night, but it wasn't last night. He's not falling for it. He sees right through it. End of verse 2, but they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Do you see the, the tactic? The, the opposition gives, gives him this seemingly innocuous invitation with the end goal to get, to get him distracted from the work that God has called him to. And it's a pretty lame scheme. And we might be tempted to say, okay, that'll never work, and let's move on. But let me just get us to think for a minute. How often do we get distracted from what God has called us to do um, by something that when we look back on it, say, that was ridiculous. That was just a stupid waste of time. How often does that happen to us? When we, when we re-examine it and we just say, what in the world was I thinking? Friends, Satan does the same thing with us. 
He tempts us in, in little things that, that in the beginning seem innocuous, but then they suck us in. And at the end of the day, it takes us away from the extraordinary. And, and the end result is it brings harm to us. Satan comes to the, the married man and says, Yeah, I know you got a wife and a couple of kids. And, and your wife's, you know, just she's always giving her attention to, to your kids. And your kids can be kind of stressful. And there's that, you know, woman at work. And she's clearly shown some interest in you. Why don't you just hang out with her a little bit? Nothing wrong with that. Just, you know, take your mind off of that and it'll reduce a little stress. There's nothing wrong with it. Just come on down to Ono and hang out with her. Then you can see where that goes. Or Satan comes to the the single man or woman and says, gosh, you know, living for God's got to be really tough when you're all alone. Wouldn't it be great just to have somebody in your life? So why don't you just indulge in that relationship? Come on down to Ono. I know it's not, not really what you want, but just for a night, just for a short time. It'll feel good. It'll fill you up. See, Satan plants these seemingly innocuous thoughts. And it gets us distracted from what God has called us to, from the extraordinary purposes that he has for us. And sometimes we buy into them. I wonder how many of us succumb to temptation and get distracted from the extraordinary life because we think that those things will bring us happiness and satisfaction even in the short term. I've had people in my office who are in shambles lamenting over situations in their lives where they have admitted, I know it was stupid, I know this was crazy, but I just keep going back to that place. They lose focus. They get distracted from the extraordinary that God has called them to. And ultimately, it brings them harm. Friends, the distraction of pornography, of drunkenness, of debt, of wrong relationships, of gossip, all of those things are just distractions. They keep us from the purpose of God in our lives. And eventually, they bring harm to us and to those around us. Satan will use anything that he can to distract us. Get us down to Ono, which I think is aptly named. Oh, no! <laughs> remember Mr. Bill? Anybody remember? I'm dating myself. Oh, no! Um, let's just all pause. Um, Oh, no, it's not a great place to go. So how did Nehemiah deal with it? Well, he assessed the distraction for what it was, and he simply said, no. Oh, no. <laughs> he simply said, no, I'm not going. You see, extraordinary people can say no 
And a lot of us don't know how to say no. Even, even good things can get us distracted. But there are a lot of us who have a hard time saying no. But what happens is when we say yes to too many things, it distracts us from the extraordinary thing that God has called us to. Nehemiah stayed focused. He said, I'm not going to get distracted because there's nothing more important than God's work both in my life and through my life. Extraordinary people say the same thing. Often the biggest struggle that we have, both as individuals and as a church, is staying on track and not being distracted because we, we get, you know, there's all of these opportunities, all these things that we could be about. But what is that thing that God has called you to? What is that thing that God has called us to? We need to stay focused on it. And notice verse 4. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Do you think Satan is going to stop with one try? Oh, shoot, it didn't work. Well, I'll, you know, move on to the next person. No, he's going to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And we need to do what Nehemiah did. We need to say no, 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 no. To be extraordinary, you have to learn to say no. Second attempt is in verses 5 to 9. Um, Sanballat and company see that their attempts to distract don't work. And so they resort to slander in order to discourage. Look at verse 5. Then the fifth time Sanballat sent his aid to me with, with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. Well, heck, if Geshem says it, then... That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. Do you see what's going on here? This is not just one guy calling Nehemiah names. This is an unsealed or open letter. In the culture of the day, that would be akin to uh, somebody today taking out a full-page ad in the Times about you, where everybody can read it. You see, an open letter would have, would have been read many, many times during its journey um, through Samaria down to Jerusalem. It would, the content would have been on KSAM, the voice of Samaria. Um, I mean, everyone would have heard what was, what was in this letter. In fact, it wouldn't have been uncommon for our... our um, um, out of the question for Nehemiah to have actually heard the content of the letter before he actually saw the letter. That's what an open letter was. And so before the letter even got there, the damage would have already been done. And what you need to recognize is that there's, on, there's only one thing true in the letter. 
and that is that the people are actually rebuilding the wall. Everything else is fabrication and defamation. This may be one of the most discouraging forces the enemy can use against you because there's really nothing you can do about slander. I had a a professor in seminary uh, named Dean Borgman who was talking to a a number of us who were planning on going into youth ministry. and, And he said, the only thing that you really have control over in your ministry is your integrity before God. He said that if, if two high school girls don't decide that they don't like you and, and want to run you out of town, um, they can end your ministry. It's real encouraging for people who are wanting to go into youth ministry. Woohoo! Um, right? He said, if two, all two high school girls have to do is, is decide that they don't like you and that they want you out of their town and they can conspire and come up with a story about how you have been sexually inappropriate with them and you're done. The truth doesn't matter. Because if they come up with that, even if you fight against the charge, the damage will already be done and you will be finished in that town. Friends, that's what slander does. Slander is hard, if not impossible, to fight against. And what happens when we get slandered too often is that we then begin to expend our energy on what? Self-defense. Right? We start fighting for what's true, for what's right. And that's, and we, we turn our attention off of the thing that God has called us to, and we put our attention on fighting for ourselves. But the truth is, there's nothing you can really do about slander except stand on the truth and your integrity before God and let the chips fall where they may. A.W. Tozer once said that when slandered, a person of God does not fight back. So how does Nehemiah respond? Does he put everything on hold and, and say, okay, i got to make a trip down to Susa and talk to Artaxerxes and let him know that everything that's being reported is not true? Does he do that? No. Does he call a, a town meeting and get everybody together and say, okay, guys, you know, you know. This? No, he doesn't do either of those things. Verse 8, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were, verse 9, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking us their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. See what he does? He stands on his integrity. The desired end was to discourage him from the work, was to get him fighting another battle. But rather than give in to that and expend his energies in self-defense, he simply stated the facts, stood on his integrity before God, and prayed that God would strengthen him as he pressed on. He stayed focused. 
Extraordinary people know that personal security does not come from how well you can defend yourself. It comes from your integrity before God. As Paul told the Romans, if God is for you, who can be against you? Right? If God is for you, who can be against you? Nobody. Nobody that matters anyway. In 1 Corinthians 4, he wrote to the Corinthians and he said, essentially, I don't care if you judge me or if anybody else judges me. My conscience is clear because God is my judge. And I'm doing what I'm doing for His glory and His honor. You see, that's Paul's position. And that should be ours. When opposition comes and slanders you, extraordinary people do not expend their energy on self-defense. And they do not allow the slander to discourage them. Rather, they stand on their integrity before God staying focused on the work at hand, praying that God will strengthen them so that they can keep going. Final form of opposition is an attempt to discredit Nehemiah. Look at verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He meaning Shemaiah, said, Let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. The idea is, Nehemiah, these guys are coming to kill you, so let's go hide in the temple. Here's what's wrong with that idea. This phrase, inside the temple, in the Hebrew, literally translated, is in the middle of the temple. What was in the middle of the temple? The altar. The Holy of Holies. Who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies? The priests, the Levites. If you've got a Bible with a cross-reference, you might see the cross-reference of uh, Numbers 18.7, which which talks about the fact that only the Levites were allowed to go into the, the inner place and to, to go um, and have contact or, or do anything inside the curtain with the, with, the, in, with the altar. And it says literally, it says anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. The point is that a non-Levite, which Nehemiah was, was not allowed to go into that place. So what was Nehemiah's response? Verse 11, But I said, should a man like me run away? Now he's not being, you know, all thinking I'm all that, that he can withstand this. He's just saying, um, I have a call of God on my life. So should I leave what God's called me to, even if it costs me my life? No. And then he says, or should one like me, meaning a man from the tribe of Judah, go into the temple, which only the Levites could do, to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Now, as a brief aside, how do you think Nehemiah knew 
that Shemaiah was not sent by God to give him this advice. Because he knew his Bible. And he knew that God would never counsel against what God has already counseled. Right? Friends, God will never counsel you against what he's already said in his word. He just won't. Oh, but Keith, I love him. He is such a wonderful and kind man and treats me so well. But is he a Christian? Well, not yet. But, but I think I should marry him. Why? Well, I think God has told me to. No, that wouldn't be God. Because God has said in his word that believers and non-believers are not to be unequally yoked. And so God is not going to counsel you to go against what he has already counseled. What's the best way to know if something is truly from God or not? Know the scriptures. Know the scriptures. So how did Nehemiah know that God had not sent Shemaiah? Nehemiah knew the Bible. He knew that God had said in his word that only the Levites were allowed in there. And for Shemaiah to say, Nehemiah, God told me that we should go in there. No, that's not right. Friends, if we're going to be able to discern when the evil one is deceiving us, to lead us away from the call of God and into sin, as verse 13 says, then we need to know what God's Word says. You can't stand on opinions. You can't stand on what I say. You can't stand on, on what your small group leader says. You can't stand on what the elders say. You can't even stand on what James says. Not even James? No, not even James. There's only one thing that we can stand on, and that is the truth of God's Word. Now, why would Shemaiah do this? Look at verse 13. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. You see, the third attack was to get Nehemiah to discredit himself. The tactic was intimidation. They're coming to kill you. But the intent was for him to discredit himself. When you walk into Food Emporium or Dwayne Reed and you see, you know, the National Enquirer at the checkout stand and it has this big headline, Cure for Cancer Found. Do you quickly grab that thing and start reading the article? No. Why not? Because right next to it is the headline that says, Bruce Jenner has alien baby. <laughs> There's no credibility. 
you don't give credibility to the first headline because there's no credibility in the second headline. Right? Here we are telling people that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ who died unto the wrath of God for our sin and rose from the dead so that we might stand righteous before God and spend eternity with Him in glory. What's more incredible? That a cure for cancer has been found or that God has come to earth so that we might have life. How are people going to believe? Why would people believe our message? Only because of the integrity and credibility of our life. So if you were the devil, what would you do to try to keep a person from the extraordinary purpose of God in his or her life? I'll tell you what I would do. I would try to distract you from the work. And if that didn't work, I would try to then discourage you from doing it. And if that didn't work, I would then try to get you to discredit yourself so that no one would then follow you in that work. That's what the devil tries to do here. Or that's what the enemy tries to do here. We all know people who, in the words of, of Paul to Timothy, have shipwrecked their faith. Men and women who have shipwrecked their ministry, they've shipwrecked their family, they've shipwrecked their witness because they have been led into sin and have been discredited. They have lost integrity of the continuity between their words and their actions. And so why in the world would anybody follow them? Parents, do you want to have an extraordinary family? Do you want to have, an, have extraordinary kids? Nobody. You guys are all good. <laughs> no, we don't care. We don't really care about our kids. I'm just trying to make it through today. Uh, If you want to have extraordinary children, if you want these children to grow up loving God, you know what they need, those kids need from you? They don't need you just to bring them to church and teach them the songs. Dads, they need to see you loving their mom sacrificially. Because if, if you're not doing that, then they're going to see a disconnect from the songs you're singing on Sunday to the life you're living on Monday. Moms, they need to see you being patient with and being respectful to their dads. Because if they don't see that, they're going to see a disconnect between the stories they're hearing on Sunday to the lives they're seeing on Monday. What about us as co-workers? How are you going to invite a coworker to come to church with you and hear about the love and glory of God when you're just as cutthroat, you're just as backstabbing, you're just like everybody else in the office? Why would they want to come? What kind of credibility do you have with them? 
You see, there, there has to be a connect between what we say and what we do. If I was the devil, I would distract you, I would discourage, discourage you, and I would try to discredit you. So how does an extraordinary person overcome opposition? Well, you have integrity. You stay focused and you have integrity. Like Nehemiah, you would rather die right than live wrong. You might be thinking, Keith, these are tough things to do. Um, why should I even try? Well, look at verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Friends, Ephesians 3.20 says that our God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or even imagine. Do you think these folks even imagine that they'd be able to finish in 52 days, much less finish at all? No. But you see, all God needs is someone who will be faithful, someone who will believe God and will pray like crazy and will persevere, won't be distracted, won't get discouraged, won't allow himself to be discredited. And he will take these folks out of the ordinary and accomplish the extraordinary through them. And what happens to the enemy? Verse 16, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. The enemy lost confidence. What does James 4, 7 say? It says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. You stay focused. You stay on it. You keep have integrity. You just stay at it. And what's Satan going to do? I'm done. I, I, I got nothing more against this person. Friends, Satan is going to oppose us. He is going to try to distract us. He is going to try to discourage us. And he's going to try to deceive us in order to discredit us. But if we will stay focused like Nehemiah... God can and will do extraordinary things and the enemy will lose his confidence. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm so grateful for the, the lessons that we can, can see in this man, Nehemiah, and and what it, what it means for us to move from ordinary to extraordinary. I pray, Father, that, that you would help us as individuals to get more laser focused on, on that thing or maybe those two or three things that, that you have called us to. And that we wouldn't be distracted or discouraged or, or discredited. But by your help, with your help, we would see that extraordinary only happens when we make it. When, when we commit ourselves to it, when we stay focused on it. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you would inspire us today, that you would encourage us today. 
that you would equip us today as individuals and as a community of faith for your namesake. Amen.